Thank you, Ed. Such a blessing. All right, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the New Testament book of Mark, chapter 12. Mark, chapter 12. Situationally, we are in the last week of the life of Jesus. He's in Jerusalem. He's been teaching in the temple courts by day and staying just outside in Bethany by night. And in this chapter, his opponents are doing everything they can to entrap him some way, shape, or form, trap them in some kind of imbroglio that they can bring to the Romans and find legitimate charge so that the Romans execute Jesus and they have the blood of Jesus off their hands. They didn't want to take responsibility. <clears throat> they wanted to, to kill Jesus for sure, but that right had been taken away by the Romans decades before, and they needed Roman approval. In fact, the Romans themselves needed to perform any execution that was brought before the civil authorities. And you go, well, these were religious guys looking forward to the Messiah. Why would they persecute Jesus? The easy answer is jealousy, envy, pride, arrogance, godlessness. But they were very religious. Avoid being a religious person, please. Counting on a church or a denomination to save you or some practice or some ritual or praying through a long line of saints and angels so that your prayers can get to heaven. Avoid religion. Stick with the book and you've got it right. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. The religious leaders are the ones who ultimately were responsible for the crucifixion of God's own son. Don't be religious. God wants a relationship with his people. That's why Jesus went to the cross. It's a relational issue between you and him, not between you and me. I love sharing God's Word with people, that's for sure. I, I love teaching it, love the history and the background and everything else. But all of that is designed so that you might have a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. Le religion didn't die for you. The rote, the ritual, the, the rest of it, none of those things can save. Only Jesus Christ could. In fact, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Father, if there is any other way... Take this cup from me, referring to his crucifixion and his impending suffering. If there's any other way for men to be saved, if they could be saved by keeping the Old Testament, if they could be saved by elaborate ritual and incense and, and churchianity, if that can save them, Lord, I don't need to go to the cross. But Jesus wound up going to the cross because none of those things can save you. Religion has kept people in bondage for so long Jesus died to set every one of us free. He died to set every one of us free. Now, the big chapter 12 there in the middle of your Bible, understand that there were no chapter and verse divisions in the original language. It just flows perfectly well all the way uh, through the previous chapters. Jesus has come into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. We celebrated that at Palm Sunday. And he rode in on the bank, back of a donkey, you'll remember, in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. And he's been teaching and preaching, the people praising him and worshiping him. And so when he comes and he cleans out the, the, the temple, when he says the things that he says, they question his authority. Well, you haven't been to rabbinic school. You're not a cardinal. You're not a bishop. You're nobody. Who do you think you are that you have the authority to do these things? I'm surprised at Jesus' ability to control himself. He should have said, I'm the son of God. What are your credentials? 
I created the universe. How would you do? Jesus didn't pull that trump card yet because his time was not yet. I want you to look at this parable then that follows as he condemns the nation of Israel for its failure to embrace him as the risen Lord. He is going to be risen from the dead, but he is the Son of God. He is the Lord. And yet, constantly, God had sent them prophet after prophet, and nobody listened. Nobody repented. In fact, God told Isaiah one time, I mean, ministry can be discouraging because there is a reluctance on the part of sheep to change. I hear every once in a while, boy, Pastor Jimmy, you sure stepped on my toes. Well, I won't save you, and that doesn't do you much good. It causes most people to just get offended. What the Word of God should do is lead us to change. My Bible says love is not easily offended. So you want to receive from God. And when I'm wrong, I want Him to correct me. It's not that He's stepping on my toes. He loves me as a father loves his child. And he corrects me because we are his children. We need correction. Be open to that. That correction can take place financially, through health issues, setbacks, brothers or sisters, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit. All of these are at God's disposal and more to bring us into that intimacy that Jesus died to give us. Don't settle for religion. Don't settle for religion. You're going to see the actions of these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the the Sadducees, and they are some arrogant people wanting only to kill Christ. He began to speak to them in parables. The word parable is to come alongside of it. It serves as an illustration. His audience is Jewish. As soon as he starts talking about a vineyard, they knew from their youngest childhood the prophecies in Isaiah, but in Isaiah chapter 5, it said that he would speak to them in parables, and this vineyard is the nation of Israel. Read that sometime at your discretion, Isaiah 5, the opening oh, five or so verses. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, tenants, and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. That's reasonable. Would you agree? But they instead seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. But he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, Certainly they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of that vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? Boy, that's a slap in the face for guys who read the Bible for a living. Haven't you ever read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected, referring to himself, has become the capstone, the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You would think they'll all repent, right? Verse 12, and they 
looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. If you're a note taker, write this down. The vineyard owner is God. The vineyard is the nation of Israel, planted by God. And in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, Israel itself is seen there as the vineyard, a very common reference to the nation of Israel. The tenants were the Jews, and especially their religious leaders. The mistreated servants were the prophets that God had sent to the nation. The son is who? Jesus Christ. Note that he is giving a parable that relates to going away for a long time. 2,000 years so far. But according to this parable and many other places in Scripture, he's coming back soon. I can't wait. We were talking about that in the band as we closed off practice this morning and uh, what we're waiting for and what we're looking forward to. And I said, and he said, I'm looking forward to going to bed and getting some rest. And I thought, I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus. Whether I get any rest between here and then is of little consequence. I want to see Jesus. This sharecropping arrangement was very common at this time in Israel. But notice how patient God is with all of us, not just the nation of Israel. He sent a servant. Then he sent another servant. He sent still another. He sent many others, knowing that they'd all be rejected. Maybe the pastors of the church today stand in that, in that heritage we can preach, we can prophesy the Word of God, which simply means forth telling the Word of God, but that doesn't mean that any of us will accept it. I beg in Jesus' name that you would, but only you can humble your heart. I can't do that. Only you can devote yourself to Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Only you can bow the knee. And that's why God kept sending them people more and more and more. Well, if they didn't listen to Isaiah, maybe they'll listen to Jeremiah. If they wouldn't listen to Jeremiah, maybe they'll listen to Ezekiel or Zechariah or any of the 12 minor prophets, but the nation by and large didn't. The church today seems to emulate the nation of Israel in a lot of different respects. We've been engrafted into the stump of Jesse, according to Paul as he writes the Corinthian church. We, we partake of the promises, but we do not displace Israel. We, we don't take their place in God's kingdom program. We're just wild olive shoots that were grafted in to this stump of Jesse in this kingdom that God had promised David and his ultimate successor, Jesus Christ. If we stand in the role of the prophets... They may not listen to you or me these last days either. Your friends that you share your faith with or people that, that you get an opportunity to minister to, they may shake your head and go, yeah, yeah, I go to church. But you may not have asked them about going to church. Do you know Jesus Christ? Well, I go, I go to church. It's not what I asked you. That makes you religious. But are you saved? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you have repented of your sins? Confess them to the Lord. These mistreated servants were the prophets that God had sent time and time again, and he's been sending prophetic speakers ever since. For 2,000 years, pastors and teachers and laymen alike have been sharing the gospel around the world, and I'll bet it's shared 100 times for every one person that comes to faith in Christ Jesus. I'm thankful for that one, but understand that you and I, if you're a believer here this morning, you and I stand in the remnant if they rejected Jesus Christ, he told his disciples later on, they will reject you as well. There's nothing wrong with the message. 
Nothing wrong with even the messenger. You can find fault with all of God's messengers because they're sinful fallen people just like myself, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. His son is Jesus, and he tells us, you know, he went away for a long time, and when he, when he comes back, he wants to see, if, is there any fruit? Is there any fruit of that ministry? Is there any fruit out of that person's life? Boy, you bring that down from a vineyard level to a single tree like you or me. Where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? What's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Where's the fruit? Where's the spiritual gifts? They are two different things entirely. But in the four places that the New Testament mentions the spiritual gifts, do you know what your spiritual gift is? Are you trying to find out? Are you praying about that? Are you seeking the Lord on that? If you know what your spiritual gift is, are you exercising it? Because we live in an age of spectators, don't we? Everybody's a Monday morning quarterback. Everybody said, well, the preacher should have said this. Well, the pastor should have brought that up, you know, don't, don't, don't ever look at the messenger. Look past him at the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Where are you at? There's all room for improvement, but what are you doing to improve your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? It's easy to celebrate Palm Sunday. Usually the kids are waving palm fronds. We have all sorts of happy stuff like that. Easter egg hunts in the backyard and people bringing candy for the kids and singing celebration songs. And here Easter is a very special time of the year. But I'm amazed at how many Christians let that die in a week. We remember on Easter that he rose, but did you know that he is still risen? Did you know that? Did you know that he's still pouring out his Holy Spirit, looking for people to work in, on, and through? That's you. But that requires that you step up to the plate. He's alive in us. Amen, he is. My little grandson, I love him to death. He just took up baseball this year. It's fun watching the little ones swing. They kind of swing in slow motion. And they miss the ball by a country mile, and they love it. They couldn't care less. You know, my little grandson, a couple of weeks ago, hit the ball, and, and he was so proud of himself that he hit the ball, and he said, run, <laughs> run. You know, that is your job and mine. Run with perseverance the race that God has set before you. Run with perseverance, with patience. There, there's a race. There's people that you can minister to that I can't. I need you to step up. One of my little guy's biggest mistakes was when they're throwing the ball, I mean, when you're, when you're just a little one, that can be pretty scary. Nobody wants a baseball in the face, right? So what's the tendency? Step out of the batter's box. Here's the problem. You're of no use to the team whatsoever out here. That's the church in a nutshell that hasn't stepped up to the plate and then decided, I'm going to hit that sucker and I'm going to put it over center field fence. You know, be earnest in what you do for the Lord. Don't be lackadaisical. Don't be half-hearted. Jesus has just presented these guys with an opportunity they were well familiar with. The nation of Israel and its leaders had been given a mandate of God to get the whole world to know about the coming Messiah. And now the Messiah has showed up, and all they can think of is, can we kill him? He's a nuisance to us. He's bringing out the fact that we're religious but have no relationship. And yet we're proud and we're arrogant and we're prideful. And, I, and boy, if you don't want to change, that really burns in your heart. You just want to kill somebody. 
What do you mean I'm proud and arrogant? Who do you think you are to tell me that? Well, that's the Pharisees in a nutshell. Jesus hadn't been to their rabbinic school, so verse 12 of chapter 12, they looked for a way uh, to kill him. God had been so incredibly patient with the nation of Israel. I mean, Isaiah was written seven and a half centuries before Jesus was born. God had given the nation ample opportunity to forsake their sin and and to serve him with all of their heart and mind and soul and strength, but the, the nation had fallen away from the Lord. All of the servants, the prophets, misused, beaten, mistreated. And because the, catch this, because the owner was not present at that time, the tenants doubted and mocked his authority. You and I cannot see Jesus today, and we cannot see the invisible God, but we serve him. But do you understand he's present with you when you sin? If we would practice the presence of God, we might take up the mantle of Christianity a little more seriously than, in general terms, the church out there in the world does. He sees everything you do, everything that is whispered in darkness. He he hears it in the full light of heaven's glory. The secret sins that we think, no, nobody sees that. Those need to be confessed because he did see that. If the Holy Spirit resides in you, you just brought him into your sin. You defiled the Holy Spirit within. That's how deep and dark and desperate sin is, and yet we tend to treat it so lightly. It's nothing. I'm forgiven, whatever. I'm good to go. Mm. Look at verse 8. So they took him and they killed the son and threw him out of the vineyard. The, the son was the final messenger. Jesus was the final messenger. And there will be no other. Either you, they would accept the message of the son or they would face certain judgment. If you do not hear the beloved son of God, you have refused your last hope, Spurgeon said in another century. He is God's ultimatum. Jesus, that's it. He's the final prophet that God is going to send. Before he comes again and establishes king, nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself can send no further messenger. If Christ be rejected, all hope is rejected. And then you see Jesus exposed their plot. Well, what will the owner of the vineyard do? You know, they threw him out of the vineyard, killed him in verse 8. The, uh, the owner of the vineyard, God Almighty, will come and kill those tenants. He's just exposed their plot and given them an opportunity to repent of it. And they didn't. Has God ever convicted you of a sin and told you to confess it and be done with it and you said no? Then this is your parable. Understand that Jesus is the final ultimatum. He is it. You either accept him or reject him. You either live out the rest of your life by his power and sovereign authority or we're on our own and judgment is sure. Understand this, that hell was not created to house one single human soul. People choose to go there because they choose in this life not to bow the knee to God Almighty. They choose to go the way of the world. They do the things that the world does. They have no regard for God. 
They have no heart for the risen Savior. They, they fail to read. They pray and get others to pray only when the chips are down and then treat God like a genie in the bottle. Well, I'll pull them out when I need them and I'll keep them in the drawer the rest of the time. That's not a relationship. Can I tell you, if that's all your relationship with God is, you are lost. You are hell bound by choice. Your own choice. Either God is Lord of all or He's not God at all. But you can't have it both ways. A little of the world and a little of God. Little drunkenness and drugs and sleeping around the rest of that garbage. Or you can have the Lord, but you cannot have both. You can't walk the fence. The, I'll tell you what, the fence of Christianity, that levy that we that fine line that we walk is a razor blade. You're going to fall on one side or the other in this issue of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You'll fall one way or another. Can't straddle the fence. Have you ever done that at a boat dock? Put one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat and the boat's slipping away? I won't tell you I haven't ever done that in my life. <clears throat> but you quickly learn you can't straddle both. You're going to either wind up in a boat, wind up on the dock, or wind up wet. And you have to choose. You have to choose. It's a volitional choice. Only you can choose to do that. I can preach my brains out till Jesus come back, and I can't make you do that. I can't make you bow the knee. I can't make you forsake your sin or confess it to the Lord. I can't make you do any of that. So God sends me along with 100 million other preachers down through the ages since the cross of Jesus Christ, calling people to repent of their sins. You'll remember John the Baptist's message was pretty monotonous. One word, actually, repent, and shouted at the top of his voice. And you say, well, when Jesus comes, it's going to be different. He's kind of, he's kind of, you know, kind of a warm, fuzzy guy I can cuddle up to. You know, he's not going to say that. Do you know what Jesus' first message was? <clears throat> repent identical to John the Baptist, because that's the first thing that people need to do. It starts you on a journey. <clears throat> You're immersed in the person of Jesus Christ. You're baptized into Christ, if you will, by your faith in Him as the risen Lord, but you give Him everything. You hold anything back. He's not Lord of that then. And people were struggling with that. All they wanted to do was, was kill Him. So verse 12 uh, no, excuse me, let me back up there to verse uh, 10. Haven't you read this scripture, the stone? That's me. The builders rejected has become the capstone, the cornerstone. Some would say the keystone in the Roman arch, but uh, the keystone wasn't invented back when Israel was, was quoting these scriptures and writing them down for the first time. So it is the cornerstone of the building, that, that big, massive cornerstone that, that set the line and architecture of the whole building. That's Jesus Christ. That is Jesus Christ. The stone that builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus is often referred to in Scripture as a stone or a rock. He's the rock of provision that followed Israel in the desert and gave them water. He's the rock of stumbling, First Peter says in First Peter 2.8. And you either trip over Jesus or you get saved. But if you trip over Jesus, you don't want to hear about that stuff. You ever, you ever try to share your faith with somebody and go, I don't want to talk religion. I don't want to talk about that. There is such resistance to love. It makes no sense. There is such resistance to grace and forgiveness, and yet people will often, I don't want to talk about that. And they would rather go to hell. So God will, will entertain whatever they want. That's fine. You want to go to hell? It's on you. Your choice. 
Some people go to the grave still cursing the name of Jesus Christ. He is the stone cut without hands that crushes the kingdoms of this world, according to Daniel chapter 2. I love that part, best of all. They were cut to the heart. Look at verse 12. They, they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. Well, at that point, you have two choices, accept or reject, but you only have two choices. You're going to fall one way or another. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. They were, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit, but they responded by rejecting, not receiving. Here's how it typically goes. I'll get saved when I'm closer to the grave. I'm fine now. Oh, really? You know when you're going to die? You know the day, the hour? You're ready for that? Huh. How many times in the past could you have died? Car wrecks, accidents, falling off cliffs, down the Grand Canyon. Today is the day of salvation. You put it off too long, and you're going to wind up in a place that you didn't really want to be. And it'll be by your own choice. They plotted to murder Jesus instead of repenting before him. Nope, don't want to do that. Not ready to give up my party life. Not ready to give up my religion, my standing, my wealth. Now that the Pharisees and the scribes have been silenced, it's now the Sadducees' turn. These were the uber-liberals of their days that denied the entire Old Testament except for the first five books of Moses, the law. They denied the resurrection. Nope, no resurrection. They denied angels because they rejected most of God's Word, rejected all that was supernatural, and then but clung to the, their own traditions. Joseph, in the Antiquities of the Jews, paints a marvelous picture of these guys that is well worth a read. They denied the resurrection. In the Old Testament, they deny, will deny the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament. But they hold the high priesthood at this time. They're the guys in charge, and they love the Lord the least. They are the most, uh, you get the picture. They headed up the ruling council called the Sanhedrin. The high priest overruled that. He was the 71st member so that there was never a hung jury on any issue they decided. The high priest would ca cast the final vote, much like the vice president of the United States heads up the Senate so that there's never a hung vote. That's the whole purpose of that. The 71st person is always the tiebreaker. And they look to put Jesus in what they think is a no-win situation. Let's look at the text. Verse 13, later when some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, these guys hated each other. The only thing that they could agree on is they hated Jesus. And so they got together. He had bested the Pharisees, so the Herodians and the Sadducees, they'll take their turn. So he sent, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You're not swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Flattery. Let's grease the skids a little bit with this one, boys. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Drum roll. Should we pay or shouldn't we? Hmm. They're trying to put Jesus in a no-win position because if he says, pay your taxes, the Roman tax system was entirely unfair, it was corrupt, and the people hated it. I mean, how many of you love doing taxes? And, by t and what is today? The day after the deadline? Have you filed? 
I mean, that's fairly important. <laughs> it's a federal law that's violated. If you don't, that's important stuff. So Jesus to say, pay your taxes, becomes instantly unpopular with the people. If he says, pay, pay your taxes, he's un- unpopular with the people, excuse me. And, and if he says, don't pay your taxes, they can haul him before Caesar and said he's guilty of treason. So they figure they got him either way. Put no stock in flattery. That's the first thing that occurs to me. Oh, Pastor Jim, you're so wise and you're so all-knowing and you're so all this. And, and then I'm thinking to myself, what's coming? You know, I love you with all my heart, Pastor Jim. You know they're, know they're going to drop the hammer. Oh, I love you and I love the church, but I'm leaving. I can't stand this. And then the criticism comes. But they always try to grease the skids with some flattery that they don't mean. Don't let them puff you up with flattery. Usually it comes just before a fall. The pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon of the great Metropolitan Church of London a century and a half ago, he said this to his pastors. It is always best not to know, nor wish to know, what is being said about you, either by friends or foes. Those who praise us are probably as much mistaken as those who abuse us. Yeah. Is it right to pay taxes or not? Ever since 6 AD, at least, the Romans were, had forced the Jews to pay taxes in, indirectly and directly into the emperor's treasury. And some Jews really resisted that, like the zealots. They saw it as their mission to go out and kill tax collectors. So they ran around with these long knives beneath their cloaks, and they would kill Romans indiscriminately every chance they had. Isn't it interesting Jesus brought one of those guys into his 12, his circle of 12 disciples? And so who else do you have in the circle of disciples? Matthew, a tax collector. Do you see that there's a possible for contention between the zealot that wants to kill tax collectors and Matthew, the tax collector that just wants to hang around with Jesus and write the gospel? And yet Jesus took all of these guys in. And all of their differences in the flesh meant nothing once they became men after God's own heart in the spirit. That's what binds us together. It's not our politics or skin color or clothing or where we live or what we drive. What binds us together is Jesus Christ himself. It is the Holy Spirit within me that ministers to the Holy Spirit in you and vice versa as we share the good things that God has done for us. That's what makes the Christian community who it is today. None of us like paying taxes, and like the Jews, most of them grudgingly paid it, but everybody hated it. It just wasn't the money. It was also the principle of paying the Romans who were their oppressors. They had taken over the, the land. So verse 13, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, should we pay taxes or not, verse 15. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. They're trying to trap him. He knew it. All the flattery was totally insincere. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. A denarius was a a Roman coin exactly the size of our dime. It's about the same thickness and exactly like ours, which has the imprint of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt on one side and tails on the other side. Well, in, in the time of Tiberius, that coin bare his image. It was stamped on the coins. So as he's looking at this denarius that in that day and age represented an entire day's wage, maybe $100 in in today's uh, 
scheme of things. But he, Jesus is then looking at that dime, and, he, and they brought him this coin, and he asked him, whose portrait is this? Whose portrait is this on this? Well, it's Caesar's, they replied. Tiberius Caesar. Then Jesus said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. What a brilliant answer. If I'd have been in that situation, I'd have gone, I don't, you know, you know this is a no-win situation. Jesus, what a masterful answer. In fact, on the back of their coin, it said Pontifex Maximus, meaning that Tiberius Caesar was the high priest of Rome and considered divine. Really? Why don't you give this to Caesar? In other words, don't pursue material wealth in this world and leave out the wealth of eternal glory in heaven with Jesus Christ. Don't settle for the things of this world. You give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but you belong to God by virtue of creation. He made you. He made you. You say, no, my mom and dad made me. <clears throat> if we take that argument back as far as we can go, we wind up with Adam and Eve, and we're all related then. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all created in the image of God. We can all choose to rebel or submit. Does your life look like it is in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Does your life reflect that? Or does it look like you live for you? And your life is a screwed up hot mess. And everybody else knows it but you. But you cling to it for whatever reason. I don't, I don't even understand the logic that goes with that. When all God wants to do is bless us, give us eternal glory with him, forgiveness of sins, wash our conscience clean, love us. And we say, mm, you know, I'd rather keep what Caesar gave me and tuck that in my pocket and not give to God what is God's. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me. This belongs to Caesar, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, they're finally thinking, it's our turn now. Those Herodians, they're idiots. Those Pharisees, they're idiots. Uh, smart guys, us learned rabbinic guys called Sadducees, us uber-liberals that deny most of the Bible, just like the world today denies most of the Bible. In fact, if you ask the average Christian, have you ever read the Old Testament all the way through? The average Christian today would tell you no. They don't consider it the Word of God. But my, I'm told that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture. You may have some more questions when you read the Old Testament. Then grab a study Bible or call the phone and ask for Pastor Tracy. You can call Kathy. She'll probably have as good an answer as the rest of us. Give unto God what is God's. Verse 18, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. That's called the Leverite Law. It was a Jewish thing that causes me to shudder. I mean, I'm not at all interested in marrying any of my brother's wives. That's way outside of the scope. Verse 20, now there were seven brothers. Here's the trap. The first one was married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, 
but he died also, leaving no child, no heir. It was the same for the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. <laughs> so, <laughs> at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Gotcha. Yeah, this is Jesus they're talking to. They have no idea what Jesus is capable, but they're trying to make the, the idea of the resurrection look ridiculous, and people mock it today. Oh, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. The purpose of marrying, according to, to Scripture, is the raising of godly children. Angels have no need, and so Jesus says in verse 24, are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? Another slap in the face. You read and study the Bible for a living. Haven't you ever read it? I mean, really, instead of just copying it and spousing it off to everybody else, have you ever, you ever actually put it into practice? When the dead rise, he says, this is in verse 25, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. In other words, if the marriage union was for the purpose of having kids and multiplying and filling the earth, angels don't need to do that. When we're in heaven with them, we won't need to multiply and fill the earth with our children. We'll be like the angels. Now, about the dead rising, Jesus said, have you not read? I love it when he says that to all of these seminary graduates, these guys that thought so highly of themselves. Have you not read in the book of Moses? You say you don't believe in anything but the book of Moses. Haven't you read this part? In the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Is he not the God of the, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living? You are badly mistaken. Bingo, he's got him. He's got him again. And yet none of them, all they want to do is trap him. They don't want to get saved. They don't want to do anything about it. But this whole idea of, of marriage stuck with me for a while. Besides these ignorant savages that simply want to trap Jesus, the Bible has a fair amount to say about this issue of marriage. Can you keep your finger here, but would you turn left just a little bit to Matthew 22? Matthew 22, starting at verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son, Jesus. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. That is, the Jews were first invited into the kingdom of God, but they refused to come. Verse 4, then he sent some more servants and said to them, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinners. The Messiah has come. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But the Jews paid no attention, went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Sounds familiar. The king, God himself, was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited, the Jews, did not deserve to come. So go into the street corners and invite to the banquet 
anyone you find. Aren't you glad of that? Uh, we are not Jews by race. We didn't inherit the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God says, okay, they wouldn't come. Why don't you guys come into the kingdom of God? And the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth, inviting people, anyone, to the wedding banquet of his son. Anyone can come and be saved and washed and cleansed, forgiven all of their sins. Go out and share that. So the servants went out into the streets, verse 10, and gathered all the people. They could find both good and bad. That means you and me. Okay. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Here's the deal. If you're going to go out into the streets and invite people to a wedding, you better provide garments for them. If you invite me to do your wedding and tell me it's a formal occasion, I need a tuxedo, you better provide one for me. These are appropriate wedding clothes. And so there was one guy there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king told his attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a perfect picture of hell. And a suffocating darkness to go along with it and no God or hope or love present there at all for eternity. Choose heaven. To not choose to bow the knee to Jesus Christ is to deliberately choose hell. There is no in-between. Jesus said, if you are not for me, you are against me. For many are invited, the parable closes out, but few are chosen. And I thought this wedding banquet idea, Luke talks about that, a wedding banquet that was filled, and you get the idea. You've probably seen the picture before of a long, 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 long table, and, and it's all ready to be served, and there's fruit and food ready to go, and we're invited into that. Last but not least, turn to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation chapter 19. This is the tie-in for it. There is a banquet that is coming. We've all been invited. I don't know if you're going to RSVP or not. I already have. I got saved in February of 1972. Radically saved. It's not that I've been perfect since. I've been saved since. And I'm headed to the wedding banquet. But in, Re in Revelation chapter 19, oh, how about we pick it up? About verse 5, then a voice came from the throne of God saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude and the roar of rushing waters like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, a Hebrew word that means literally praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. For the Lord God Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Here it is. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. That's Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, someday when the rapture occurs and we're caught up to heaven, there is going to be this banquet that is there waiting for us. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who is the bride? The church is the bride of Christ. Notice, you want to take note of this carefully. It says it's our job to make us ready for his coming. 
It's our job. It is your job to make sure that you are ready for his coming. He's coming back, and it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye, and there won't be time to repent then. Live for God today, or don't live for God today, but understand this. This is all of heaven and hell hanging in the balance of your decision. Choose wisely. To not accept him is to reject him. To put off making a decision is to reject him at the present. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Mm. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, we'll be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and everything that you and I ever did for him by the power of his Holy Spirit and in his name. There will be that day of reward. It's a day where all of our filthy garments of sin and self and narcissism and drugs and drunkenness and alcohol and sleep, all of that garbage will be taken off us and we'll be clothed in Jesus' own righteousness. 20 years ago, I had a dream. And in this dream, I was on the top of a flat decked house that backed up to a forest and there was nothing but green grass in front and the house sat right at the edge of the forest behind me and the grass in front of me and I was just there and I was I, I in this dream I had peace like I've never had in my entire life it was amazing I was just overwhelming peace a sense of well-being then I heard the voice of a child as I was there just looking up into the heavens, feeling gloriously full of his Holy Spirit. And I heard this child's voice saying, look, Mommy, one of the glorious ones. I thought, what a curious thing to call somebody. And I looked down from the top of my second-story uh, flat-roofed house then, and I saw a child down there who's pointing at me with his mother. Look at the glorious ones, Mom. Look, he's one of the glorious ones. I thought to myself, I don't understand. And then I looked down, and I was clothed in dazzling white garments, so bright you couldn't stand to look at them. They were just radiant. It was like Jesus had his transformation. And then I realized, I'm here not by my good works, but by the grace of God. That's what clothes me in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I can't earn my way to heaven. I can't hope that my filthy robes are good enough. Isaiah says, don't you know that all of your works of righteousness are as filthy rags before the Lord? Because they were done in the power of the flesh, not the power of the Holy Spirit. We didn't do it dependent upon him. and didn't even invite him into the conversation. It's not that unbelievers can't do good works. They do them by the power of the flesh because they're made in the image of God. And though that image has been marred by sin, Every single person on the planet still carries a little bit of the image of God. And that, that's how pagans are able to do kind and good things. And how you were able to do good things before you got saved. But there's no reward for those things. Those were done in the flesh. But those that have surrendered 100% to the Lord of Jesus, Lordship of Jesus Christ, have surrendered their lives to Him and read and pray and cling to Him. And realize that someday he's going to call us to glory and we'll be at at this glorious wedding feast. Those people will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, that's a fascinating study in Revelation 19. Fine linen, you chase that idea of white clothes throughout the book of Revelation. You find the only people wearing that aren't angels, it's, it's us, it's the redeemed. Those that know and believe in Christ Jesus. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Verse 9, then the angel said to me, write this down. This is important stuff. It's a hope to hang on to in the last days. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Isn't that cool? Every one of us has been invited to this glorious banquet to sit down with the Lord Jesus, and he'll serve us communion. Can you believe that? We'll fellowship with him. There will be this glorious table set. And while hell on earth reigns for seven years during the great tribulation from Revelation 6 to 19, you and I will be up there enjoying this seven-year banquet with the Lord Jesus Christ, walking in glory and clothed in his own righteousness. Uh, so, whose clothes are you wearing today, yours or Jesus? Jesus, he is my righteousness. I have no righteousness. That's why I so desperately need Jesus. But at the risk of offending you, can I tell you this? You have no righteousness either. Without Jesus, you perish. Your life will be changed utterly and completely the day you give your life to Jesus. But if you choose not to, and it is your choice, hell awaits you by your own choice. Choose Jesus. Choose life. Let's stand together and close in prayer as the praise band comes up. Lord Jesus, I bow the knee again. I bow the heart. I confess my sins. This needs to be your prayer too, congregation. I'd ask that you forgive me all of my sins. Set joy and hope and peace and patience before me. Let me partake, Lord, of your righteousness. I have none. I have none, Lord. All of my good deeds, what are they compared to you? Absolutely nothing. Filthy rags. Impart to us your righteousness. And if there is anybody here this morning that's not living for you, I pray that you'd convict them of that mightily and that they would bow the knee, repent of their sins and selfish ways, their own purpose-driven life. Father, we ask humbly that you'd have mercy on us that you would save the lost these last days, and that as this wedding invitation goes out to all the earth, this gospel message that the Savior has come, would you save many, Lord? Save many. We need you so much, Lord. Save.